0: following is a teaching message from Shore Community Church. For more information on Shore or our teaching resources, visit www.shore.org.nz. So this morning, James chapter 1 is where we're going to be. If you've got a Bible, pull it out, and Kizia is going to come and read this passage, James chapter 1, starting in verse 13. Thanks, Kizia. All right, well, last week, if you're here, if you remember, uh, we looked at the, the passage before this one and uh, James was talking all about trials, difficulties, struggles that we face in our lives. And uh, while I was preaching that message last Sunday morning, uh, our oldest boy Josh was going through a bit of a trial in his own life, nothing major, nothing too serious, but um, he, he, last week he competed in the Wheat Bix Triathlon last Sunday morning. And so, and we just sent him off with his cousin. We weren't there, and he just went off and did this thing. And he'd never done anything like that before in his life. And in fact, we didn't even tell him what it was like, really. We didn't tell him how long he was going to have to run for. We We didn't tell him how long the bike ride was. That would have freaked him out. So we just... I don't know whether that was good parenting or not, but we just <laughs> sent him off on this, this huge thing and he'd never, never done any of these distances before swimming, biking, or running. So he went off quite happily and uh, we then heard the story later on of, of what had happened. He got through the swim okay, that was first up, and then they come out of that and they go into this transition zone where they have to get their bike. And he, he, he got into the area and he couldn't find his bike. So he looked around and it turns out that another kid had taken his bike we find out afterwards and so he couldn't he couldn't figure out what had happened and he asked one of the helpers to give him some assistance, and they finally figured out which kid had taken his bike, because that kid's bike was the only one that was left after all the other kids had taken off. So this kid had come along, obviously couldn't find his bike, and he'd taken Josh's bike, and he'd taken Josh's helmet, and he'd taken Josh's shirt, uh, and all this stuff. So Josh just had nothing there, and so the helpers then had to get on the phone to this kid's parents and ask their permission for Josh to ride this kid's bike, and take this kid's shirt and helmet, which he did. And so then he was riding this bike and it had gears and he hadn't ridden a gear bike before and that was hard for him. And then he was, of course, really delayed because of all this. It was way after everyone had gone. So he didn't seem phased by it. I mean, he was fine. In fact, he wants to go again next year. So he's, he's happy. He's happy. But when I heard the story of what had gone on, my reaction was a little bit less than mature, shall we say. Uh, there were some, some choice words that went through my head about this kid. Um, There were some words that might've come out of my mouth. There were some things I was thinking about what I would have liked to have said to him. Uh, what done to him or said to his parents and things I wish his parents had said to him. Uh, All kinds of thoughts went through my head. So my reaction was a little bit less than mature and adult in that situation. And so I kind of feel like thinking about James 1 and this, this passage we're working through, I feel like last Sunday, Josh kind of went through the first half of the chapter, trials. And then I went through the second half of the chapter, temptation. You know, that I had this temptation to get angry and retaliate and be violent and take vengeance uh, for, on the sake, for the sake of my son. So we've kind of ex- experienced James chapter 1 in our family over the last couple of Sundays. We've, we've been living this stuff out. And this is what James is talking about in the bulk of this first section. It's, he's talking he's talked about trials difficulties, struggles, and now he comes over and he talks about situations where we are tempted, tempted to say things, do things, speak things, think things that are not honoring to God, not what God wants us to do. The thing to point out here as we get our bearings in this chapter is when James is talking about trials and when he's talking about temptations, he's using the same word. Okay, this is important. So it's the word pyrasmos, it's a Greek word, and it can be translated either trials or temptations is only the one Greek word for both. We've got two words in English, and they, they talk about distinct things, but only the context will determine which one James is thinking of. So when he talks about consider it all joy when you face trials, and then when he comes and talks about when you are tempted, <clears throat> it's the same word. It's perasmos, both times, even though he's talking about slightly different things. So I've got this little diagram here, just a simple way of conceptualizing what James is saying. On the left, we've got trials. That's what we talked about last week. Situations of struggle, situations of difficulty, whether they are big or small. Situations where we encounter adversity in life. And then on the right, we've got situations of temptation. These are situations where we are susceptible to sin. Susceptible to doing something, thinking something, saying something that is destructive, damaging to our relationship with God, to ourselves, to our relationship with others. That's a slightly different thing. That's quite a different thing to, to trials, isn't it? Situations of trial may or may not include temptations. Situations where we're tempted may or may not involve trials. But you see, there is this area in the middle where the circles overlap, and that's the black hole. That's the place you don't want to be. That's, that's no man's land because those are situations where we face one situation, but it's both a trial and a temptation. Now, that's hard. Those situations are hard. You can think of things in your own life where you've encountered both trial and temptation at the same time. I think for me, one of the ultimate examples is IT problems. I had IT problems a little while ago, and I couldn't access networks I needed to access. I couldn't access files I needed to access. Uh, I lost files. I lo- there was, it was a sermon I was working on. I almost got to the end of it, and then I lost it. That's why my preaching was so bad that week. That's what I told the elders anyway. And so I just lost this file. And so there was a bit of a trial. I know it's nothing you know, compared to what other people experience and so on, but that was a situation of trial for me. And then at the same time it was a situation where I felt this rage rising up within me because there's nothing more frustrating than IT problems. You just take it for granted that things are going to work. You can access the files you need to access. And then I just felt this anger, and I quietly cursed the names of people that I felt may have been responsible under my breath. <laughs> Um, and so I, once again, you know, I'm ashamed to say my behavior was not quite what it should have been. I got grumpy and irritable and then eventually just sat outside Michael's door crying until he, not really, until he took pity on me. So there's a trial and a temptation. And you can think of situations, right? For you, where you, you encounter difficulties and then that situation also presents an opportunity to sin it also presents an opportunity to respond badly and think or speak or act in ways that just kind of take you down a negative path. So what James is talking about in this passage that we're looking at today is more on the right-hand side. It's more in the right-hand circle. He's talking about temptations, times when we are enticed toward sinful behavior, times when we are allured by the temptation to sin. And the first thing that he says that he tells us about temptation In verse 13, he wants to get something clear right up front. He says, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. So James is saying, It's important we recognize that when we're tempted, God is not the author of our temptations. Temptation does not have its source in God. It does not have its origin in God. It may feel like it sometimes. We may feel like God is tempting us. We may feel like God is pulling us this way or that way. But in reality, objectively, God never tempts anyone. Now, we need to qualify this carefully because if you look, if you come back to that diagram again, can we just put that diagram back up, dealer? It is true that sometimes God will test us. Okay? So there are times... When God will test our faith by leading us into situations that are not easy, by leading us into situations which are trials, left-hand circle. But when God does, and it's not every time, but when God does that, it is never for the purpose of leading us into temptation. It's never for the purpose of tearing us down. It's never for the purpose of damaging our faith, leading us into sin. That would be completely contrary to God's purposes in our life. He doesn't want to lead us into sin. He wants to lead us away from sin. He doesn't want to lead us down that path. He wants to lead us towards righteousness. So God never leads us into temptation. There are times God may lead us into the left circle, but when we end up in the right circle, it's because we get there ourselves. It's because we directly lead ourselves there. God never directly leads us into temptation. So God's not the author of the temptations that we face. So if God's not the author of temptation, who is? Where does temptation come from? That's what James is going to deal with in this passage. And what he does is he gives us this kind of breakdown of temptation. He describes it like a pathway. You remember last week we talked about this this pathway or this progression, the way that trials in our lives can lead us through to maturity if we allow them, they can build perseverance, lead us through to maturity. Well now James is going to describe the opposite pathway. He's going to describe a downhill pathway and show us the way that temptation can lead us down a damaging and destructive and dishonoring to God pathway. And he's going to describe it in a similar way. One thing leads to the next thing, leads to the next thing. And by understanding the way that temptation works, because we don't think about it, we succumb to it a lot. We just don't think about what's going on. But James analyzes this pathway so we can have a better understanding of how temptation works within us so that we're better equipped to deal with it and to resist it. So let's walk down this pathway that James describes and see how the road of temptation works and what it looks like. Where does temptation come from? James answers it in verse 14. But we, each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. So James says, temptation starts with desire. It begins with desire. And we know this because we feel these desires all the time. And we often find these unhealthy, unwholesome desires rising up within us and enticing us and leading us in directions we know are not good. This is the source of temptation. We see it in our lives, right? We see it in our kids' lives, those of us that are parents. Uh, I remember when Ezra was younger. Anna told me about a time that she was taking Ezra through through the warehouse and he was in a stroller. He was about one year, year old at the time. She had him in the stroller. She was taking him through the warehouse. It was around this time of year leading up to Easter and she bought a bag of Easter eggs, little Easter eggs wrapped in foil, a packet of them. And all these Easter eggs were inside a bag of plastic meshing. So she knew there was no way that Ezra was going to be able to get into this bag of Easter eggs. She figured she'd be safe giving him to, giving them to him to hold in the stroller. So Ezra's holding these Easter eggs in the stroller, and a few minutes later, Anna looks down, and Ezra's just got chocolate all over his face. And what he'd done is he'd just held the bag up to his face and just sucked. And he couldn't actually get into the Easter eggs, but he'd just sucked. And he'd managed to suck the chocolate out through the foil of the Easter egg wrapping out through the plastic meshing and just got these mouthfuls of chocolate through. And so all that was left was this disintegrated mess of chocolate and foil crumpled up and plastic meshing. And you just know what had happened. He'd been sitting there with this bag of Easter eggs and desire had welled up within him. Desire had overtaken him. You can't give a bag of Easter eggs to a one-year-old and just expect them to handle it. He'd been overcome with desire and he just thought, oh, I can't get into it. I'm just going to have to suck it. And so, he did, and uh, he was led into temptation. Uh, So, you know, this this kind of stuff is happening all the time. That's a simple example. That's a fun example. But you know, every day we, we, we face desires that come from within our own hearts that are unhealthy and unwholesome, and they lead us down bad paths. It may be the desire of lust. It may be the desire for attention from other people. It may be the desire to control, to Uh, have power in a certain situation. Whatever these desires are, they can entice us, they can lead us in directions that are wrong. But it's important to remember that desire is not all bad. It's easy to think that all desire is, is kind of, of the devil, and that desire is the enemy of Christian life, and that the Christian life is kind of about duty, and we need to get rid of desire, and we just associate desire with personal selfish pleasure. But in fact, if you think about the desires that you have, if you follow those desires all the way down, all the way back to their source, all the way back to their root, you will find that many of our most basic primal desires are actually really good that many of our fundamental human desires are very good desires because God has made us desiring beings. He's given us hearts that have longings and loves and desires, and many of those desires are really, really good. We have a desire for security. We have a desire for happiness. We have a desire for fulfillment. We have a desire to be loved. We have a desire for identity. We have a desire to make meaning, make sense of our lives. We have a desire for purpose in life. Who placed those desires there? God. God. God's created us with desire. So let's not think all desire categorically is bad. Our most basic desires are really good. What has happened is that through our sinful nature, through this proclivity to sin that we're all born into, our desires have become distorted. They've become perverted. They've become corrupted. So that instead of following our desires to their true object, we, our desires attach to things that are unhealthy. And we start desiring the wrong things. Or we start desiring the right things in the wrong ways. Or we start desiring the lesser things to a greater level. And we allow our desires to be met, or we try to meet them, with things that were never intended to meet these desires. So we take our desire for security and for love, which is good and God-given. And we try to meet that desire through superficial relationships. Shallow relationships, running into the arms of the first person who gives us any attention. We have a desire for happiness and fulfillment in life, but we try to meet that desire through stuff and through possession or through lifestyle, through comfort and convenience and the accumulation of wealth. We're trying to meet good desires, but we're meeting them in unhealthy ways. And this, I think, is the source of so much sin in our lives, It's generated primarily by good. If you follow those desires all the way back, they're actually very healthy. But our desires have become contaminated, and they've become misdirected, confused, and disorientated. And now they start attaching themselves to the wrong things. So when James talks about being led away by our desires, we need to qualify that to say distorted desires. Because not all desire is wrong. But our desires become distorted when sin takes a hold of them and then they start leading us off in these wrong directions. We become overwhelmed, overcome by these sinful desires and that that starts leading us down unhealthy paths. So temptation begins with desire. It begins with distorted desires that come through our sinful nature. And then where does that leave? Next step in the process, what happens after desire? Uh, Verse 15, then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. Now, there's an important distinction here that desire is a different thing to sin. Did you notice that? It's only when desire conceives that it gives birth to sin. The desire itself is not sin. To desire something in and of itself is not sin. It becomes sin when we give into it. It becomes sin when we embrace it. It becomes sin when we somehow give expression to that desire through speaking, acting, behaving, or thinking in some kind of way. It, it, it may be all in our minds. It may all stay in our heads, the desire and the sin. It, for example, you start with a lustful thought becomes a lustful fantasy. Well, that all stays in your head. It may never come to expression, but at a certain point, it's crossed the line from desire to sin becomes sin when we embrace it, becomes sin when we harbor it, we foster it, we give into it, we follow it, and it comes to some sort of expression in our lives. And again, this is happening to us every day. Desire is welling up, rising up. It often happens in a moment, and it's giving, given expression in all kinds of acts of sin. <clears throat> John Altberg uh, is a well-known Christian author. He gives an example of this, Desire leading to sin. He talks about the example of university students. University students who take a particular course and they get to the end of the semester and they have their final exam, but they haven't studied for the final exam. So what they try and do is make up an excuse to get out of the final exam. Because if they can come up with a legitimate excuse to get out of the last exam, their mark gets averaged over the semester and they might pass, but they haven't done the work. So the desire to get out of the final exam then becomes the act of lying, the act of dishonesty. And he says there's actually been studies done on this, studies done about the lies that students tell to get themselves out of final exams. And you know the most common lie that's told? Death in the family. Yeah, That's the most common lie. And even more specifically, the most common person in the family whose students lie about having died to get out of the exam is grandma. Poor old grandma. And so John Ortberg analyzes the statistics, and he says this, in a humorous kind of take on this, he says, grandmothers are 10 times more likely to die before a midterm, and 19 times more likely to die before a final exam. Worse, grandmothers of students who are not doing well in class are at even higher risk. (laughs) Students who are failing are 50 times more likely to lose grandma than non-failing students. It turns out that the greatest predictor of mortality among senior citizens in our day ends up being their grandchildren's academic record. (laughs) The moral of all this is if you're a grandparent, do not let your grandchild go to university. It'll kill you. So it's kind of a humorous take on it. But he's talking about how desire, this desire to get out of this exam and desire to try and pass or whatever it is, leads to a simple, small, little white lie that the student tells to try and get out of trouble. This is happening in our lives all the time, isn't it? Big things, little things on an, on an everyday basis. We have a desire. It leads to some kind of sin. The desire of lust leads to looking at websites that we shouldn't be looking at. Uh, The desire for power or control uh, leads us to be manipulative with other people, leads us to be duplicitous with other people, to act in ways that are not respectful towards other people. The desire to be liked, to have attention, uh, to be noticed by other people leads us to buy stuff we don't need, to impress people we don't like with money we don't have. We make these decisions all the time. Desires rise up and they lead to sin one thing after another after another. Now, that's only the second step in the process. James isn't finished yet. He's talked about desire. He's talked about sin, individual acts of sin. But then look at where this process eventually goes. At the end of verse 15, sin, when it is full-grown, gives birth to death. Now, that word, full-grown, that is a version of a word that James used back in verse 4 to talk about the person who is mature And complete. It's the word teleos. Do you remember it from last week? And James talks about the person. Teleos is the one who has come through to their intended goal, who has come all the way through to the process, to the end goal of maturity and he's describing that in a positive sense. But now he uses a version of the same word to talk about the opposite, that you can go the opposite road, and that road of sin and temptation and desire, it eventually leads you all the way to another destination, to the opposite of maturity, to the opposite of being mature and perfect and complete. It leads you to this place. James describes it as death, death. Now, he's not primarily thinking about physical death because We all die regardless of how we've lived. He's primarily talking about a spiritual death. He says, if you follow this path all the way down, desire becomes acts of sin. Acts of sin become patterns of sin. Patterns of sin become habits. Habits become entrenched in our lives. They form us and they shape us and they mold our character. And where we get to in the end is a place of spiritual death. You might have it all together on the outside. You may have all the trappings of success, achievement, status, and acclaim. And on the inside, you can be absolutely spiritually dead. You can be a spiritual corpse because you may have drifted so far away from God, so far away from your anchorage in Jesus. So far away from the person that God created you to be, you've completely lost your bearings, completely lost your moral compass. Your character is nothing like the character of Jesus. And you've just allowed yourself to get embedded in these habits of sinful living. And it's now become who you are. Some of you may be in this place today. You just look back and you realize there's been a whole process in my life. I've drifted. Maybe you haven't even really noticed it happening, but you've drifted and drifted and drifted and drifted. And and you've realized I've ended up in that place James calls death. I'm so far from God. I've just allowed this stuff to take over. And now I don't even know how to get out of it. I don't even know because this stuff has become addictive in my life. I don't even know how to undo the patterns of sin that have got me to this point. That's the, that's the progression James is talking about. That's the pathway. He says that we're all in danger of walking down, of going down, if we're not careful. And I think what James is saying here is that when you just take one little step along this path, you are choosing the destination. You know, you take one little thing, ultimately you're choosing the teleos. You're choosing the end goal of that destination. Really, in the Bible, there are no small sins. We think there's these little things that we can do, that we can get away with. little touch of the arm, a little shuffling a bit of money around, little embellishing of the truth, a little bit of power play over here. We think there's these little things that don't matter. As much Because they're just so small and there's far worse things out there, so who cares? When you take one step, you are choosing the destination. You're walking that road. And I tell you, when you take one step, it's then 10 times easier to do it again. And you do it a second time, it's 10 times easier again to do it the third time and then for that to become a habit, and then for it to become bigger and bigger and bigger things and snowball in your life. James is saying, don't even take the first step. Don't even allow those desires to take root in your heart. Don't even entertain them. Don't even play with them. Don't even play with them in your mind because if you take one step down the road, you are choosing the destination. So don't even start on this journey of sin. Now, all of this has been pretty bad news Right, this is a pretty sorry story James is telling here. This is a pretty sad picture of sin leading to death. But it's not all bad news in this chapter. There is, a, there is a, 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 an upright ending to this passage. There is something hopeful at the end of this that James describes. It's in verse 16. He says, Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change Like shifting shadows. So James has already established that God is not the author of temptation. But now he says, let me tell you how God is involved. Let me tell you what God does do in the midst of your temptation. Every good and perfect gift comes from God. God doesn't lead us into temptation. But what he will do is give us good and perfect gifts to help us resist temptation, to help us to say no to temptation. And that word perfect, by the way, guess which word that is? Talios." Same word again, James has used it three times now in this chapter, that same word to describe maturity where God's wanting to lead us. James is saying, God's not gonna lead you down this destructive path. He wants to lead you to maturity and wholeness and he's gonna give you some good gifts to help you get there. Now, what are these good gifts? What does God give us? Well, he gives us his spirit. He gives us the Holy Spirit. If you belong to Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit within you. And in moments of temptation, the Holy Spirit works like a kind of early warning sign like a warning signal. You know you've been in those situations where you're on the precipice, yeah? You're on the precipice of saying something stupid, doing something dumb, thinking, harboring some kind of thoughts that are really damaging. You're on that precipice and you, and you feel within you this little prompting. You felt that? This little impression, this little voice, this looks like a warning light going on, saying danger, danger, pull up, pull up, pull up. That's the Holy Spirit. That's one of the functions of the Spirit in our life is to give us that warning light when we're on the precipice of making a dumb decision and allowing desire to become sin. The Spirit nudges us. The Spirit prompts us. The Spirit just pushes us in those moments. We've still got to decide whether we ultimately listen or squash that voice, but the Spirit gives us that little prompting in our heart to say, get out of this situation now. Walk away. Think away. Get away. Get out of the shop. Get out of the conversation. Get out of the room. You're in danger. We all know our own weaknesses, and the situation will look different for everyone. But the way the Spirit works is the same. He'll warn you, and we've got to listen to that. That's a gift to have that. It's a gift to have that inbuilt warning system. We need to be attuned to it and respond to it when that spiritual warning light comes on. God gives us His Spirit. He gives us His Word. He gives us His Word to guide us, to teach us. To help us, like this passage, figure out what temptation looks like and how it works in our life. To encourage us, like passages in the Bible that say, no temptation has seized you except what is common to mankind. And God will not let you be be tempted beyond what you can bear. Promises like that that encourage us so we know there's nothing that's going to happen. That God won't give me the strength to face with Him. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, beyond what He will give you the capacity to bear. So He gives, gives us His Word to empower us and encourage us. He gives us His people, doesn't He? He gives us one another. This is part of the purpose of the church, is to encourage each other. We are not designed to face temptation alone. So often we're battling away. Some of you, you're battling away in these private, quiet little battles and you're losing those battles and you haven't drawn other people in. You haven't drawn other people around you. I used to meet with three guys in this church for breakfast on a Wednesday morning at Denny's to eat half-cooked eggs and we would ask each other, 10 questions every week. They were the same 10 questions every week because we'd agreed on them beforehand. And they were questions that guys need to ask each other, questions about what kind of husband we'd been that previous week. We didn't have kids at the time, so we didn't ask about kids, but questions about how we'd been in our workplaces, uh, our integrity, our sexual purity, these kinds of questions. And it wasn't always easy. There were definitely some awkward moments. But if someone said something, if someone had struggled, then the others would come around them and encourage we weren't there to judge each other, come down on each other. We'd, we'd unpack it with that person, how, you know, how, what happened. How can we help you put things in place so it doesn't happen again? How can we pray for you? How can we encourage you? It was a wonderful little support system there for me of encouragement and accountability. If you don't have people in your life who are walking this journey with you, if you're, if you're fighting a battle and you don't have brothers and sisters around you, it's just 10 times harder community and accountability has been shown to be one of the most powerful resources we have in resisting temptation in our lives you can get yourself into a life group but it might be as simple as just drawing one other person alongside you and giving them permission to ask you some questions that are a little bit difficult and saying here's my struggle here's my life could you follow up with me can you ask me how i'm doing i give you permission to ask me how i'm doing please pray for me Please encourage me, but hold me accountable as well. If you haven't done this yet and you're battling, draw someone in, ask someone to come alongside you so that you face this battle with them. And you know, one of the most important gifts God gives us when we face temptation is the gift of forgiveness. I think this is perhaps the most important gift of all, his forgiveness, because the reality is we, we can walk out of here today so well-intentioned thinking we're going to take on all these temptations in our lives. The reality is, by the time you go to bed tonight, you will have blown it. One, two, three, four, five, countless times. We just do. That's not permission, but that's reality, isn't it? Every single day, We, we face temptation. We want to take hold of the resources that God gives us to face temptation. But the reality is, we are going to screw up. We are going to mess up, sometimes in really big ways, sometimes spectacularly, other times just in small little things, but we're going to mess up. And one of the most important things then is how you respond in that moment when you've messed up. Because here's what it's really easy to do. When you blow it, it's then easy to say, oh, well, I've blown it. I might as well really blow it. you know, Or, well, today's a bit of a write-off then, isn't it? If I've blown it once, I might as well just keep on living, you know, doing this thing. And I'll just kind of, you know, I'll get back on track tomorrow. Or I've kind of of messed up now. I might as well just let it all go. And if I'm going to sin, then I might as well just sin big time. And this makes it 10 times worse. Because then it starts with something small and we almost give ourselves permission to go crazy. Because, well, now the floodgates are open. Who really cares? One of the most important things is that when we do mess up, that we come back to Jesus and allow him to refresh us with his forgiveness and his grace and renew us again and remind us that we are forgiven, that we are loved, that we cannot fall beyond the reaches of his grace. We cannot out-sin God. We can never fall out of his arms and he's there every time. It means praying the prayer of David, created me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. And every single time, God will come back to you Every single time God will restore you, he'll set you back on your feet. He'll wrap his arms around you and say, right, let me strengthen you for the battle again. Let me strengthen you for the fight again. I'm with you. We're going to face this together. Here we go. We've got to remember to come back to God when we blow it and not to allow ourselves to remain estranged from him any longer than we have to. There's a Christian author named Brennan Manning. Some of you might have heard of him. He's a wonderful author on the subject of grace, He wrote a book called The Ragamuffin Gospel, which is a great book talking about how we're all ragamuffins. It's the word he uses. We're all broken. We're all messed up people. We all sin. We all desperately need God's grace. And he's traveled the world and written many books encouraging Christians to receive the grace of God. Well, late in his life, he died a few years ago now, but late in his life, he wrote some memoirs. And in his memoirs, he disclosed some pretty shocking stuff. And it turns out that for his entire life, he was a complete alcoholic. And this like through his whole Christian ministry. And this went on even after he'd written the memoirs. Right up to the point of his death, my understanding is he was a complete alcoholic. I think he battled with it. I don't think he just completely succumbed to it. But he never recovered. He never really got on top of it. There were The stories that have come out about Brennan Manning, there were days when he would take a retreat for people on the wonderful grace of God. And the next day, go on an absolute bender and just completely off his face. And as a result of that, a lot of people have criticized him and and, and that he's gone down in their estimation. But for me, I almost find it encouraging. I find it encouraging that someone who preached about the grace of God lived with this constant awareness of how much he needed the grace of God in his life. Here's what he says. My life has been anything but a straight shot, more like a crooked path filled with thorns and crows and vodka. Prone to wander? You bet. I've been a priest, then an ex-priest, husband, then ex-husband. Amazed crowds one night and lied to friends the next. Drunk for years, sober for a season, then drunk again. I've been John the Beloved, Peter the Coward, and Thomas the Doubter, all before the waitress bought the check. I've shattered every one of the Ten Commandments six times Tuesday. And if you believe that last sentence was for dramatic effect, it wasn't. There's a man, I think, who experienced tremendous temptation. And often lost the battle, but also knew how much he depended on the grace of God at every single moment. And some of you this morning, some of us are facing battles of temptation that have gone on for years and years and years and years. And they've become entrenched in your life now. They're patterns of addiction. And you don't know how you could possibly get out of these things. You need to know every single time you come back to God, doesn't matter if it's the five millionth time that you come back to God for exactly the same thing, He will always forgive you. He will always take you back. He will always shower His grace upon you again. We get to thinking that we have just done too much. It's been too bad. It's been too long. The hole's too deep. God can't possibly do anything with me now. Every single time, God will take you back because Jesus has already died for every single one of those times. If you were beyond the reaches of His grace, Christ could not have died for you. But he's taken it all upon himself. And every single time, God is going to take you back. The biggest challenge we have is simply receiving the grace that's already there. The biggest challenge we have is forgiving ourselves. The biggest challenge we have is accepting that we're accepted, that we're forgiven, and that we're loved. So as you think about this pathway that James has been describing from desire through to sin, through to death. I want to just give us a couple of minutes as we close today, just to think about what God's saying to us in areas of our life that we're struggling with, because it's very easy for all of this just to remain a kind of a theory or a theological idea about how temptation works, but this is real. You know, we're all battling different kinds of temptations, some of them more visible, some of them known only to you. We've got kids that are battling temptations. You've got spouses that are battling their own demons, and it's affecting you. You've got flatmates and close friends that are battling their own temptations, and it's having a big impact. This is going on all around us all the time. We've got to push past the idea of just this being another idea or another verse or another cliche or another platitude. And really ask God to break through into these lives, into our lives, where we are facing real temptation. So I've just got a series of questions that I'm going to leave on screen for a couple of minutes. And I want to encourage you to think about these questions and allow God to press on your heart what what He might be wanting to say to you. What are the evil desires? The words James uses, what are the evil desires that are dragging you down? What are those desires for you? What are the small sins that you're excusing? In what areas of temptation do you need to see God's power break through? And where do you need to receive God's grace and forgiveness afresh? Let's just take a couple of minutes to think through those questions to allow God to put on our heart what he wants to put on our heart and let's respond as we need to to what he's saying to us. Father, we lift up our hearts to you. We lift up all the struggles and battles, all the failings, Lord, the areas where we are losing battles against sin in our lives right now. We lift up to you all the little things and the big things. We lift up to you the things that happen in a moment and the things that have been chains around our ankles for a long, long time. We lift them all to you, Father, and we confess our sin. We confess our sin, God. We agree with you that these things are wrong, that they're ungodly and unwholesome. And Father, as we confess them to you and lay these things down before you, we receive in this moment your grace afresh into our lives. Your cleansing spirit poured afresh into our hearts. We thank you, God, that your forgiveness is so complete. It's so full. It's so abundant. Father, if there's any resistance in our heart to receiving that grace afresh into our life, we pray you just break through and remind us that we are forgiven and loved and reconciled to you. Thank you that you cleanse us, that you wash away every stain, all the filth all the dirt, you wash it away, you cleanse us. We thank you, God, that in spite of our sinful lives, because of Jesus, we stand before you cleansed and free and clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. We are so deeply grateful. We are so grateful for Jesus. We're so grateful for his sacrifice on the cross. He's absorbed all of our sin. We thank you. And now, Father, I want to pray for all of us here as a church that you would give us the strength we need to fight the battles that await us. God, all the battles inside, the battles outside, the battles against sin, we want to pray, God, that you would give us the fresh strength, that we would see your power in these situations, that we would take hold of your spirit, that we would take hold of of your word and of the encouragement of one another. And we would look forward with confidence and fight these battles in your strength. Father, we want to pray that those words of the prayer that you gave us to pray lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shore Community Church. For more of our teaching resources or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, Or for more information on Shaw Community Church visit www.shaw.org.nz Alternatively you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455 Thank you for listening.